The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his Maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their King. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let's pray. Lord, as we just sang of your love, as we hear in this psalm of your pleasure towards us, we say thank you and blessed be your holy name. You have love on us, you have pleasure on us, your people, not because of anything in us, but because of your good and gracious decision to love us. The scripture says that you love your people because you love your people. We are left before that speechless. And if we have to find words, we can just say thank you. Bless your holy name. So Father, I ask you now that you would press into us, your people here, some new appreciation of what it means to be the pleasure of God, the favored people of God, objects of grace, loved, forgiven, set free. Lord, we have a passage before us that shows us one of your people from a long time ago who got that and lived it in an alarming way, really. Would you, would you help us to get it a little bit and to live it a little bit? A little bit more, a little bit more. Part of your growing work in us, Lord, is to help us to see and then to grow in the worship of the glory of your grace. Help us to get it and, and to live in it. Use the passage today that's before us. Father, would you send the Spirit to us, your people, and commission him to open our eyes open our hearts to, to reorder some of the, the thoughts that are jumbled up in our heads to, to rewire how we approach things to do whatever kind of changing work needs to be done that your people hear, that we hear your, your sons and daughters would know and would enjoy the grace of God on us and would walk in it and then, Father, would you reach out to those here who don't know you and by your Spirit show them what grace is. Show them what sin is and show them what grace is. Show us beyond just, just language. Use language, but beyond language, show us in a way that we comprehend. Do this here this morning, I ask you so that you would be honored, so that your praise would be, would be what fills this room, what fills our hearts, what rings out from us as we walk out of here, that you would be honored, 
And that would be our joy. That would be good for us. So do that work, please, here this morning. Give order to my words. Help the passage to be clear despite my words. And build your church. Do that, I pray. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 12, particularly the second half of that chapter beginning in verse 15. Last week we focused on the first half of chapter 12, which was a continuation on of the story of David and Bathsheba that was begun in chapter 11. A great evil that David did in the sight of the Lord. That's the language of chapter 12, verse 9, describing the shocking events of that chapter. David used his power to take Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, and then to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed with the, in, in battle, killed with the sword in battle so as to cover up his sin. And all of that was evil in the sight of the, of the Lord and alarming to us. We, it comes out of nowhere. We don't expect it as we're reading through Second Samuel. That's, that's what happens. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, as we saw, the Lord moves to confront David sending the prophet Nathan to him. And Nathan then carefully and clearly brings out David's sin, clarifies for him what the root issue was. He says in verse 9 and in verse 10 both, you despised the word of the Lord. You despised me. That's behind those sinful actions is a setting aside of the Lord, a turning away from him to follow after other gods, namely to follow after himself and his own desires. So the Lord makes that clear and graciously afflicts David. We talked about this last week, how the affliction, the consequences that are laid on David are in fact gracious. Whatever would come from the hand of the Lord that would turn people back to him would be good. Whatever would come from the hand of the Lord that would cause other people who are watching to be turned to the Lord would be good. That's the purpose behind these afflictions. And so they are grace from God And even more so, there is grace in the forgiving release that Nathan pronounces on repentant David. So in verse 13, that's the the main goal of the whole passage, the main goal of all this. David is, is stuck in a place of sin and the Lord reaches out to him through the prophet for the whole goal of releasing him from that and bringing him back. To forgive, to make to make clear forgiveness and to bring him back and reunite him in, in, in close fellowship. So David confesses his sin and Nathan says, you will not die, David, though you should, but your son, David, he will die, though he shouldn't. Talked about how there's an allusion there to something marvelous that's coming. A son of David who would die, though he shouldn't, in place of those who should die but won't. There's the gospel right there at the end of of Nathan's confrontation with, with David. However, the son will die. That prepares us for what we see in verses 15 and following. And it's important, though, to, as we move into this, a couple, of, a couple of pieces of groundwork I need to lay before I read the passage is to point out It's going to be important for us as we think through the passage to point out that the grace of God comes to David before his repentance. 
God does not deal graciously with David after he repents. Grace precedes repentance. That's why God in grace reached out to him to, in kindness, draw him to repentance. Grace precedes the repentance. Now, the repentance is important. Clearly, it frees up for the grace of God to flow into David's life experienced. But God looks on him in grace to start with. And the second thing to consider, when God strikes the child, as we talked about a little bit last week, we, we don't need to get sidetracked into wondering, what about, the, what about the baby? What about the child here? I think there is evidence in the rest of the Bible, enough evidence for us to believe that we don't need to worry about the child. God is gracious, merciful, and the child goes into the presence of the Lord. So don't get sidetracked into that. This is a judgment against David, not a judgment against the child. So keep those things in mind. Let me read the passage. I'm going to begin in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. And then I'll pass back through it to understand some of the details and then make a couple of overarching observations. 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead, and David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He's dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, moreover I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together 
and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold. And in it was a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord, Second Samuel 12. We picked up in verse 13 with David's confession of his sin, his repentance, and it's real. As he sits there before Nathan, as we, we talked about last week, the, the sentence of death, which is the right sentence for adultery and murder, it still hangs before him. This is the prophet of the Lord. He may very well pronounce that in the next minute. But even with that hanging in front of him, he, he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Not primarily those people, against the Lord. And Nathan tells him the Lord has taken away his sin. He won't die. However, the child will. In verse 15, the Lord afflicted the child. He did not just fall ill. It did not just come from somewhere else. The Lord afflicted the child. Even while we keep in mind what I already said preliminarily, keep in mind that this child is going to go into the presence of the Lord, and I think there is later, even in verse 23, an indication. David says, he won't come back to me, I will go to him. I think he means, I'll be with him. I think that's a statement about the salvation of the child. Some disagree, but I think so. Even with all that in mind, it's still difficult for us to kind of hear those words, the Lord afflicted the child. God did something here. Brought affliction. Don't skip over that. Notice that. We're going to come back to it. And it's the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. Now, they've been married now for about eight, nine months, something like that. But she's still called here in the text at this point right here, Uriah's wife. She's not even named with her own name. She's named with with a label so that in case we have somehow forgotten where she belongs, it's underlined for us again. Here's the sin right in front of us. This is Uriah's wife, and here's the judgment on the sin. The Lord afflicts the child laid right in front of us to highlight and make even more amazing what follows. Adds more emphasis to verse 16. David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child. That doesn't make any sense on several levels. That David would go and talk to God in the first place is audacious. That he would ask God for a gift. That he would pray and ask God, give me something, give me some favor, bless me. That itself is presumptuous. But then that he would ask for this gift that is in direct opposition to what God just said was the consequence that he was bringing for the sin. That's almost dumb. David sits there. I know you were said you, were, you said you were going to do this. You did it. But this hurts, so how about if you don't? 
Stop there for a second. That makes no sense. It is, it is audacious, it is bold, it is perhaps insulting. It's amazing that David would do this. So much so that the servants don't think that's what he's doing. They don't think that the, the fasting and the, the unkempt appearance, you know, no change of clothing, no personal hygiene, lying on the ground, they don't think that's prayer. They think it's mourning, which properly belongs after death. So if he's mourning like this before death, he might be suicidal after death. They don't think he's praying and, and beseeching God, pouring out his heart to make a request of him. But that's, in fact, what David is doing. He asks, he prays, and then it doesn't happen. And we get another bizarre twist. When he finds out the child is dead, rather than spiraling further down, verse 20, he stands up and he's fine. Fine. Cleans himself up, goes into the house of the Lord, that is the tent where God's ark is, and worships. He worships. He stands there before the Lord, blesses the name of the Lord who just afflicted and killed his child. He worships. And then he eats, and worse still, went and comforted his wife Bathsheba. She's got a different title now. She's no longer wife of Uriah, his wife Bathsheba. And slept with her. I think most of us would say you might want to stay away from her. At least for a little while. He goes to her, comforts his wife Bathsheba, and sleeps with her. What is he thinking? He tells us, verse 22 and 23. He's thinking about the grace of God. And the possibility that because of the gracious nature of God, there may very well be more grace from God. Because there is always abundant grace from God. So he asked, maybe God will give me grace in this particular way. This is, this is what I desire. I'm going to ask him. He says, no. Okay. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's over. Let's eat and be merry. How can he do that? Is that presumptuous? Is that wrong in some way? Is is that off? Not at all. God makes very clear to us this is proper. He puts two stamps of approval on this. First, foremost, David and Bathsheba, from this particular union right here, he brings forth another son. Not one that he pours out a judgment on, but one that he lifts up, says over him, I love this one, gives him another name, Jedediah, love to the Lord. Raises up one that he loves, makes him the crown prince, and continues the covenant through this one, this son of David and Bathsheba, right from this moment. This is where the messianic line comes through, right here. There are many other sons already born to David, and God skips all of them to pick this one. Is David doing the right thing? Absolutely, he's doing the right thing. He's thinking properly, acting properly. And God says, 
And to prove it, Solomon. And then secondly, to prove it, verses 26 and following, we get the conclusion to this section. The final capture of the Ammonite capital. Joab had captured part of it, the royal city, and he said, the whole city, if I take this, it's going to be, I'm going to be famous for it. Come, David, take it. So David comes, captures the whole thing, and what we see here is the David of old. Striking down the enemies that began way back in chapter uh, 10. It's finishing it off. He subjects the enemies, puts them down to labor, brings in much tribute, puts on this great big crown, his crown with many crowns. Again, a 75-pound hunk of gold. Can you imagine that? God puts David right back where he was, the conquering king. David's right. David is dealing with God. David is walking through life exactly like he's supposed to. Going into God's presence, asking Him to turn away this this sentence, getting up and worshiping, acting as if nothing happened. And this time we're shocked, not because of sin, but because of grace and its effects. This is an amazing story. And one of the difficulties that we face, I mentioned this last week, I think, one of the difficulties that we face in approaching this is that you're way too familiar with it. You know, you know how it goes. The servants are shocked it shouldn't be happening. Anybody who, who read this the first time through would say, kind of like I tried to present it to us, this shouldn't be happening. This, surely this is, not, this is not how God wants people who just got caught breaking five of the Ten Commandments, that how He wants people like that to act with Him. I mean, maybe give it a little time. Come on, David. God twice says, that's exactly how I want such people to act. That's exactly how I want such people to act. If we would get this, this is the release. This this is the, the gracious releasing of burden and of shame and of guilt that should come off of people. If you would get this, it would... It would lift off of you and what would come out of you is a worship, a delight and a joy. And a strength of mind and heart to deal with affliction and consequence that does also come. The Lord afflicted the child. So may God press this into you. I'm going to make two observations, as I usually do. Oh, please do not let this be so familiar that you stop paying attention about right now. May God grab you and press into you shocking grace. Here's the first point. God's grace really restores full favor to those who are its objects despite their sin. I'm going to say that again. God's grace really restores, and I didn't really because I want to emphasize that, really restores full favor to those who are its objects, to those who are recipients of it, to those on whom it is outpoured. 
despite their sin. That's what we see here in this amazing passage lived out in David. God is a God who is full of grace. That is, He is full of undeserved, unmerited favor. Grace is God's goodness played out. God's goodness enacted where it is not deserved. And it is deserved nowhere. God's goodness enacted where it is not deserved. When we begin to think like that and understand that, we see, boy, the grace of God is everywhere. The good God that is, He is overflowing in grace all the time, giving all sorts of good to this undeserving world. He gives sun and gives rain and gives breath and life, gives pleasant relationships and happy feelings, very commonly the whole world round. Every day, on every single person, grace, 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 grace. So much so that it cannot be accidental. God must intend it. God means to show something about Himself. I am a gracious God. I am slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, poured out on everybody commonly. The theological term for this is common grace. It isn't at all tied to salvation, and it's not at all what I'm talking about this morning. Okay. You've got to see God grace on everybody and then very carefully not get confused about a really, really important point. That grace that is vast and is universal and is in every moment of every day on every person is not what I'm talking about. The grace that really restores full favor on those who are its objects. That's not the grace that we're talking about this morning. It is real, and it should color how you see God, and it should point out to you that you need more than that. The grace that we're looking at this morning is a grace that really restores full favor, special or saving grace, different from common grace. Special or saving grace. We just move back into last week's passage to kind of set this up. Can you help us to mentally introduce ourselves to it? God tells David that his sin has been taken away. We talked about where that goes last week. That just as it's stated right there, there's a big hole left. How does God, righteous God that he is, just say, never mind, on sin? He doesn't. He's got somewhere that he puts it. He holds it, and as Romans tells us, he's held all the sin of his people in the past and carried it forward until he was going to kill the great son of David and hang it on his cross. That's where he puts David's sin. So that happened already before our passage this morning. It happened before our passage last week, incidentally. To use New Testament language, David is saved. To use the language of Romans 5 and 8, he stands in grace. So there is no condemnation on him. God poured saving grace on David long before this incident. Provided payment for his sin long before this incident. 
God's saving grace is how is the lens through which God looks at David in favor long before this incident. And it's what moves God to graciously intervene in David's life by sending Nathan to turn him back. So very importantly, the repentance, as I said earlier, the repentance does not make God gracious towards David. The repentance happens because God already is gracious towards David and reaches out to David to pull him back. Repentance is critical. Repentance, if you think of it like this, a vast reservoir of water, call that the grace, a dam blocking it up. Repentance breaks down the dam that the water may flow through. Grace makes there to be a reservoir in the first place, and grace breaks the dam. Repentance is important. Repentance does not make grace. It's a gift from God because of grace. So coming to this passage, we see that God has already saved David, already looks on him in favor. And the emphasis of this passage is not so much how that grace came to him, but what it looks like to walk in it, to embrace it, to be gripped by it. The effect of such saving grace. Despite his sin, David is an object of saving grace that really restores full favor onto him. Really. Fully. Such that verse 16, when he sees the child sick, therefore he sought God. That in itself should stop us right there. If, if you're reading this for the first time, you think, probably, something maybe like the child born to Uriah's wife was sick, and so David sat down quietly and accepted the judgment. Or perhaps the child born to Bathsheba's wife was sick, and so David ashamed that it was his fault, went to the back room to lay low for a while. That's what should be there in our minds. That's how we act often. When faced with our sin, when looking at a consequence to our sin, we either say, I should, I deserve it, or shame, we run and hide. David says, well, I'm going to run right up to the God who did this and ask him not to. <laughs> Something's not right here. Or is it? He runs right up to the God who did this and asks him not to because, as he tells us in 22 and 23, I'm figuring on something. I'm counting on the fact that God is a God of grace. And who knows, he may very well... We want to say, I know, he will not. I would not. How many of us parents, how many of us who are parents here, or in some authority over someone else, when somebody does something audacious and wicked and evil and gets caught and you say, therefore this, if they turn right around and say, how about not? Are going to say, oh, okay. <laughs> no. Who knows whether I know whether he will not be. And God says, oh, yes, I might be. Oh, yes, I might be. 
that was right. Now, I wasn't, but that was right. It was right for him to come into my presence and ask me for grace and mercy in his time of need. The door is open to this one. Counting ahead to look at the great son slain. The door is open to this one and he should of course come into my presence and should of course lay out his heart before me and I will of course receive him and of course listen to me and of course then he should get up and worship and of course then he should go to his wife Bathsheba and of course then I will give him a son. Of course. There is no condemnation on him. Not a bit. None. He should act here in chapter 12 exactly like he acted back in chapter 7 when I made covenant with him. He didn't deserve that either. He doesn't deserve any of this. He didn't deserve my blessing in chapter 9 when he was showing kindness to Mephibosheth. He doesn't deserve my blessing in chapter 11 when he's killing his buddy. He doesn't deserve any of this. It's grace. And it's real and it's full. Of course He should come to me. That's what shouts out from this passage the reality of full favor that grace brings to its recipients, to those who are its objects. Full favor. He didn't deserve that favor. He never did. You never do. But you have it if you are in Christ. Because of God's saving grace on you, not because of anything you have done, not because of anything you would do, not because of anything you wouldn't do. All because of God. Praise His glorious grace. Far too often we live like some version of the servants. Now, they're confused and they don't know everything, so we can cut them some slack, but we know more than they do. You know more than they do. You know everything, probably everything that I've just said to you. You, you know it. You know it. Tragically, isn't it? So stop and, and just think there. What am I going to say is tragic right now? If you think about yourselves, what's tragic? Right? What's tragic is that you know this, but live like the servants. What's tragic is that you know this somewhere up here, but think, I just got caught in sin. I, I best not. I better shape up or something before I dare approach God again before I dare go worship God again, before I dare act as if this is over and move on with my life, I should kind of you know, beat myself a little bit for a little while at least to show that I really mean it. That's how we live. Tragic. Tragic. Grace means full favor. 
Grace means, if you're a Christian, I'm talking about saving grace here. Grace means I took your sin, I put it on the cross of Christ. When you say, I'll accept that plus a little bit of self-affliction, then what you're saying is the cross wasn't enough. I don't dare say that. You shouldn't either, says God to his people. You are not to, cannot even, you are not to interact with God on a deserved favor basis. This is laid out, some version of this, I'll tell you where the idea came from, laid out in a, in a, a book called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. It talks about good days and bad days. You are not, cannot, Interact with God on a deserved favor basis. On your good days, when you think you've walked with God, you know what those are. Those are the days that you had a a lengthy, quiet time in the Bible in the morning. Prayed and felt like you were actually connecting with God. And you smiled at the rest of the family as you left. And you avoided your habitual temptations. And you led three people to Christ at lunch. And you healed the disease that afternoon, you think. And probably cast out a demon or two. Showed loving kindness to some Mephibosheth along the way. On those days, God obviously has full favor on you. And on those days, you can walk with your head held high. A child of the King. And on those days, you can intervene and, and pray for that, that Christian friend or, or family member that says, I, I need help. And on those days, you can open up your Bible and say, well, here's what I've found from the Lord. On those days, God smiles at you, favors you, loves you, and is near. And on the other days, when you get up late because you stayed up too late the night before wasting your life playing video games, or worse, And then you don't have time for your Bible, but you rush out the door and you spend too much time thinking about, that's code for lusting for, that particular person in your class or office, some Bathsheba somewhere. Obviously, on that day, God's angry with you and you'd better shape up. Who are you to tell somebody what you found in the Word of God? God won't hear your prayers. But you hear on those days, coming into your head here, don't even try to come and ask me for some gift or some favor. Look at yourself. Do you think you deserve favor from me? Look at yourself. Would you be freed from that? Be freed from that. By answering that question, indeed, look at me. Look at my good days. And maybe, maybe God would graciously give me some insight into all the wickedness in my life on my good days. Indeed, look at me. Of course I don't deserve favor from you. 
But if God were to actually talk to you like that, you should respond to him, of course I don't deserve favor to you. So yeah, look at me, but let's also look at someone else. Now, I'm making up a conversation between you and God. This, this would not happen, okay? And the tone would not be the same. He would not need to be reminded. The second conversation here. Yet yeah, let's look at me and how undeserving I am, absolutely. And let's also look at someone else who you hung on a cross because I am undeserving and upon whom you put all of my undeservedness, all of my wickedness, all that is evil in your sight. You killed him for me and exchanged for that, exchanged, poured on me full favor. I don't deserve anything. Please And smiling, he will say, that's how you should be thinking. That honors me. That praises the glory of my grace. That honors me in what I did to my son. That honors me. That pleases me. Now, I may say no, but I like your thinking. I may say no because I am more gracious than to just give you whatever you want. I'm going to give you what's good for you. So I may say no. But I will listen. I will receive you. I will put my arm around you if I say no. You should ask. You should walk with your head held high. You should relate to me. You should know that my smile is on you full favor because of grace. Just like David. Praise the glory of His grace. Believe the Gospel, Christian. Believe the Gospel. really restores the favor that was between God and people before the fall, really restores that. Full favor on you, Christian. We need to think about this in the situations like those good days and those bad days. And we also need to think about it in what I might call kind of status realities. I talked about good days and bad days there as as things that change from Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday to Friday. But there are some of us here who had an abortion 20 years ago and still think about it. Some who are married to somebody who is not their first spouse And as you read the Bible now or listen to me explain the Bible, you realize I had no grounds to divorce that first spouse and no grounds to marry the second one. Hmm. There are some of you, maybe, that as you think about last night that set up today's bad day, it wasn't just last night. It's been last month and the last year. It's what you do quite consistently. Seems like you've you've got something there that is very difficult to fix or something that cannot ever be undone because it happened and you can't go back 20 years and make a different decision now. What do you say to that? What do you deal with that? People deal with it two ways. One, more commonly... Try to forget it. Just try to forget it. And then when somebody like this uncomfortably reminds you of it, you get upset. 
or rationalize it away. Actually, I mean, I, I did have grounds to divorce that guy. He wasn't very nice to me. That's not in the Bible. That's not grounds. So we try to forget it or rationalize it. The other alternative is to say, yeah, look at me. Yep. And let's look at the gospel. Thank God for the gospel. I can't bring that one back that in a moment of fear or wickedness, whatever it is, I did this or that or the other. I I can't go back and, and undo that. I can't change that. But thankfully, God in great grace has really restored full favor to me. So the one now that you're married to, your spouse, fill in the blank. Go to him, go to her. The the child that has died, by the grace of God, close that and move on. That may seem audacious. I put it before you that it's actually honest and honoring. It faces something clearly and then honors God not by trying to add to the work that He did on the cross by beating myself up about it or by by hiding in shame, but it honors God by saying, I really believe that the cross really did take all of my sin and remove it all, really, and that I am in favor before you, honestly. I will come and I will talk to you. I will hold my head high and I will walk with you. God's grace really restores full favor on those who are its objects despite their sin. That is an awesome blessing. Praise be to the glory of His grace. The reason that He did it in the first place. That praise would be to the glory of His grace. So you need to hear that and grab that and see David walk in that in audacious, free ways and say, yes, God help me walk like that. And you need to carry that then into the second observation, which I will be brief with. God's grace may bring and may not stop Affliction or consequence for sin. God's grace may bring and may not stop or block or bring to an end affliction or consequence for sin. In this chapter we see God telling David, last week we looked at this, because of the sword that you brought out, I will bring out the sword. And because of what you've done with the wife of Uriah, I will address your wives. And it's clear. A or B because of A. Consequence there. And it's clear here that the Lord afflicted the child. It didn't just happen. God did it like He said He would as a consequence. 
And David, confidently, boldly, sure of his full standing, standing in full favor, went into God and poured out his heart, fasted for a week, laid on the ground. Doesn't say he was in sackcloth and ashes, but that's the impression that you get. And God said, I like how you're thinking, but no. Arm around him, embracing him, but no. This is a God of marvelous and astounding and amazing grace that still does not stop the consequence. And as we read the whole rest of the book of Second Samuel, the good, the good times are over. David's reign from here on out is plagued because God also didn't stop the consequences of the sword and the consequences with the wives. Sexual sin and violence marks the rest of the book. He is still a God of marvelous and astounding and amazing grace, and He is not remotely angry at David, not remotely vengeful. In fact, He is fully and deeply committed to restoring David. And He does. And He wants to hear Him. And He blesses Him. He returns Him to the conquering King. And He gives Him a son. The the line of the Messiah continues. But He says, no. We need to put that together with God really restoring full favor. But that He may bring and may not stop affliction or consequence. These two things go together in our lives. The difficulty for us is that we often interpret God's favor through the circumstances of life. And it seems like He struck my child. He must not have favor on me. That's clearly not the case here. He brings a sword against my house. He must not have favor on me. That's clearly not the case here. Consequence. Affliction. As we said last week, we can talk about that word specifically here in relation to our own sin, but really it, the, whole, the, the idea that I'm laying out here expands to affliction that comes from other people's sin, that comes from no particular sin that we can identify. Affliction in life... God in His wisdom, God in His grace brings affliction and brings consequence. All of it designed for good for His people. All of it, does He not tell us in Romans, worked together for the good of His people. That can be very hard. That can be very hard. I don't want to pretend otherwise. I don't, want to, I don't want to pretend that now that you've understood this, the problem goes away. If you understand this, if this, would, if this would grab you and sink into you, it will give you strength to fight the battle that will need to be fought amidst affliction. There will be a battle there. A battle not to quote the old hymn by, I think it's William Cooper, a battle not to judge the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. To believe He is a God of grace. I do not want to judge what I see with my own eyes here. I want to believe 
and evaluate that way through believing. That will be a battle. Has he given you any evidence that he's trustworthy? Yes. One of the great uses of the cross in our lives, Christian, one of the great uses of the gospel in our lives, it's a stake driven to the ground that God is good, that God looks on you in grace, has restored favor to you, is for you. You have to judge the circumstance through the cross. It will give you sustaining strength in the face of affliction, even in the midst of affliction. It will give you strength to go into His presence and to ask Him and to receive an answer, if it would be to receive an answer, no. And still then get up and go worship Him. His steadfast love endures forever over you. If you interpret, does he love me through my circumstances, you will often come up with, of course not. But if you interpret, does he love me through the cross, you must come up with, yes. And then that can give you a perspective at the circumstances. This then is to be worked for good in my life. This then has come to me because God decided in grace that it's best. Circumstances must come last on the train here. You must start with the cross. If you do that, you will find great freedom and great strength in the fight to believe amidst affliction that God is good, that God looks on you, Christian, in full favor, restored to Him, not as a second-class citizen because you screwed up, really, His friend, son, His daughter, His heir, really, May God press onto you the depth and the breadth, the height, the length of His amazing, gracious love for you in Christ. His favor on you. His favor on you. It's the most serious, most liberating, best thing in the world. His favor on you. Walk in release. Walk in faith. Walk in joy. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for how you ordained a tragedy in David's life. You providentially control all things. And while David and all of us are responsible for our own sin, you providentially brought about the events of chapters 11 and 12 to show us evil in your sight. Show us the danger of using power to serve our own desires. Show us Your grace in confronting us with sin and Your grace in removing sin and your, Your grace that should affect how we walk on free. What a story. Thank You for it. 
And I pray, Lord, would you set your people free from guilt and from condemnation. Do indeed, Lord, call them to repentance, to break down the dam that would block up the experience of that favor. Restore unto them the joy of their salvation. Restore unto them life in their bones, not the wasting away as was read earlier. Call them to repentance indeed. But it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Press that home. Please, Father, onto your people. Press it home. Give them release. Help them to walk with you in joy. For the good of your people, for the good of your church, and for the glory of your name, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.